Star jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. You should be able to hear the magnetic resonance. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Speaking anyway. It's the last time we used tape. I don't know. Good evening, or morning, or afternoon, whichever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the event horizon where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time for a journey into science fiction, science fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. Each week, the Event Horizon features writers, lecturers, artists, filmmakers, and other talented creators of the fabric of this marvelous continuum we call science fiction. I am your host, Gene Turnbow, founder and station manager for Krypton Radio, and with me is Susan Fox, the station's executive producer. Science! <laughs> Our guest today is Dr. Vigay, doctor of archaeology and creator of Dr. Geek's Lab a website and podcast devoted to the concept of science from fiction, and the author of the book Archaeology and Fiction from Eureka Publications. Welcome, welcome, uh, Scott Vigay. Well, thank you for having me. Dr. Scott. Dr. Scott. (laughs) Absolutely. It's like Mr. Scott with an upgrade. (laughs) I often thought that Mr. Scott should have had a doctorate or two. He probably does. Yeah, he would... I mean, he came up with the uh, the uh, the long range teleportation equation, which right. nobody could crack. The right. method of inflating your your time estimates, so when you actually hit your the original mark, you look like a genius. Well, that's, a miracle worker. Yeah, that's every mechanic I know since then has has adopted that worldview. <laughs> I always used it as a as a as a uh, software developer. I always used that, and I always came out smelling like a rose. Let me tell you. Yeah, so, you do. <laughs> so tell us about the book. Oh, all right. Web- Archaeology and fiction. Let's, let's. Which one are you most excited about? The book or the website right now? Actually, both. Uh, I have to say that uh, Archaeology and Fiction just came out, so I'm very proud about that. It's my first book. Uh, I have done a lot of legal education writing, uh, and as such, in, as my in my role as an attorney. Uh, but this was the first time that I've done something that was educational, but also had elements of fiction in it. So I'm very excited about that. But it all is part of the uh, grander world of Doctor Geek's laboratory. So tell us about Doctor Geek's laboratory. All right. Well, Dr. Geek's Laboratory, we are the science from fiction podcast. You know, how this all thing started for me was a few years ago was remembering that uh, Avery Brooks commercial for IBM. You know, he says, you know, it's the 21st century. Where's my flying car? I was promised flying cars. You know, why don't I have them? 
And it dawned on me that we have a lot of uh, very intelligent, very passionate science fiction fans out there, but we're all doing the same thing. We're sitting there saying, why isn't the future the way it should be? Uh, and the solution I came up with was, well, if it's not what we want, we have to make it so. And that was what it was all about. So I created a podcast and a website and a philosophy of getting involved and the idea here is that we try to reach out to all those entrepreneurs, tinkerers, and enthusiasts who are bringing about the world of tomorrow. And the idea is to bring that audience one step closer uh, to those people, get them involved, get them uh, excited about those things. And if we can get people excited about science now again, that would be great. So it's a form of, of STEM outreach. That's, that's, uh, that's kind of a, uh, an interesting... <laughs> I was going to say it's an interesting approach. It's more than an interesting approach. Well, but it it's a works. Fantastic approach. Yeah, you know? Yes, it does. Yeah. We're in Southern California. We know people in the sciences. We know people who work for NASA. Every one of them was a Trekkie, you know? <laughs> That's right. That's right. And, and the thing about it is the modern generations, uh, you know, the current generations, they really need to kind of remember that, too, that, you know, the answer is get involved. And that if, you know, the reason why the, the cell phone looked a lot like a communicator for so long was because of Star Trek. I mean, you know, if you think about Star Trek specifically, Almost every prop and gadget on there has been attempted or is in the process of being attempted, uh, from the bio bed to the communicator to the hypo spray to the tricorder, uh, you know, all that stuff. I, I can't think of another show that has influenced uh, the world of tomorrow more. And the idea is which just keep that momentum going. There have, there have actually been several variations of the attempt at the hypo spray. Yes. Yes, and there's an X Prize going on for the tricorder, uh, you know. And w w when we did our first season of Doctor Geek's Laboratory, the first things we did were the flying car, of course, mm -hmm. and the privatization of space, because those are the two things. When you think of the future, those are the topics you think of. And it was fascinating to see where the the um, roadblocks were, if you will uh, allow me to use the term, and how they were approaching it and how close we are. And it's it, in the year since we've done those interviews, uh, it's amazing. Terra Fugia has really gotten close. I mean, they've got a, uh, a plane called the Transition that's a roadable aircraft. This is not something that can just go from the, the uh, taxi line to your uh, garage. This is something that can go on the freeway. It still looks like a Cessna with wings folded up, but it can go on the freeway. Uh, and then oh, they've just recently re uh, released a new version, a, a new uh, prototype that's more of a flying car. Uh, it's still a ways away. It's still in prototype mode, but they're going there. They're actually going to attempt it. Yeah, I somehow I picture flying cars, and I don't see roadblocks as being a problem. There better be some because I've seen, tr you know, traffic in major cities. And these people are not ready for two dimensions. Far <laughs> right. But I mean, that's the whole thing is that the infrastructure is evolving. And as it evolves, you know, our participation as a pilot will change. You know, the, the initial concept is to have more private pilots. Uh, and then eventually it's going to evolve into uh, more of a passenger uh, you know, experience where you sit in and you program the destination from your GPS. It knows all the traffic uh, from here to there, and you just hit go. And if something happens, uh, if uh, there's an emergency while in flight, it knows to land at the nearest airport. 
So that's you know it's it's amazing how that's evolving and and it's it sounds like science fiction but they're not it's not I mean people are really taking it seriously and you know uh, th- that's the whole thing I I I find there's lots of inspiration uh, from uh, for real science in fiction and to, to go back about the book for a moment how that all happened was uh, a few years ago. Uh, my wife, who is a New York Times bestselling author and is, goes to these conventions all the time, uh, we were attending TimeGate, and they were asking, so what's your husband do? And they said, well, he's an attorney. He's an archaeologist. And they said, oh, well, we, does he like Stargate? And she said, does he like Stargate? Of course he does. <laughs> and they said, well, would he, would he give a, um, uh, like a talk on the archaeology in Stargate? And she said, sure. So she hung up with Alan came downstairs, knocked on my office door, and said, so guess what I just talked to you into? Uh, <laughs> and uh, it went very, very well, and I've been doing that, uh, you know, that panel at things like Dragon Con mm-hmm. and TimeGate all over the Southeast, and it's been a couple years now, and I've been ma- making adjustments and adding to it and all that stuff. And uh, last year at Dragon Con, a, a gentleman came up to me and said, uh, so, you know, at the end of the, of the discussion, he said, this was fantastic. He said, is there a book you can sell me on this? Do you, you have anything like that? And I said, no, sorry, sir, sadly, no. And my wife, you know, kicked me in the ribs and said, you know, idiot, if someone asks you if you have a book, you say yes. Uh, so, um, you know, <laughs> exactly. So we went, uh, went home and I basically took my outline that I had done, uh, so many times before and then went through the process of fleshing it out and turning it into something that approximates what we do live. Uh, and has, uh, like I say, from, from, uh, our experiences with Dr. Geek's laboratory, uh, you know, my wife and I, and, and coming in with our, the, uh, the ideas of, of things like that and uh, injecting it with the humor and that mix of science and fiction and talking about the, you know, where the tropes of archaeology, why are they there, um, what purpose do they serve, and how close does it get to real archaeology, and, and why do we love it so? So you had a good running head start at this. Yes. Yeah, but you know it was it was a, a learning curve because uh-huh. uh, going from being a a, a lawyer uh, where you learn to condense things down into their most succinct points, and then doing the fictional, uh, I'm one, of, I'm basically the the head writer for Doctor Geek's Laboratory. I, I'm the one that takes the the, the first crack at all the scripts. Uh, and writes them all, and then the the cast comes in and, and makes their adjustments to make it a little bit funnier or a little bit more like them. And uh, so I had to learn that, too. And then this book is a mix of the two. So uh, it was definitely a, a learning curve. And, and uh, my wife, who was the editor for it, uh, said that, uh, you know, hey, uh, this is going to be an uphill battle. You know, the first few drafts were a little rough. Uh, but we got there, and it was a lot of fun. And uh, I think people are responding to it well yeah we certainly uh uh we certainly love the idea of it i am ashamed to say that we did not quite get to uh actually read the book yeah i only found out about it half an hour ago so uh, i'm fast i'm not that fast (laughs) but i've been talking about the the whole stargate thing myself i mean half half the movie was about uh dr daniel jackson trying to sort out the language do we want that every episode no so everybody speaks English in space, and they right. get on with the story. Right, exactly. You have it's it's a forty five minutes 
uh, you know, taking into account the previously on the uh, opening credits and closing credits, you've got 30 minutes to come up with a problem, work on the problem, and come up with a solution, and they just can't do it. So, you know, the, the biggest thing that real science has to deal with when you try to employ real science in fiction is time dilation. There's just no time for your scientists to be wrong, unless the script requires them to be so. That's true, you know. Yeah. Trial and error is not, you know. But I love the Stargate. I love Stargate the the motion picture because uh, Daniel's ability to make those leaps of logic that shows a very real skill in archaeology, especially if you're doing something that is non text based. You know, you have to kind of make these intuitive leaps. Well, what what is this information telling me? You know, what is the story here? And you have to do your best to come up with a logical you know, set of circumstances that explains what you see. And that's what Daniel does all over the place. In in at least until the gate opens. And then from there, it's like, well, we have no time. He, you know, he can learn one verb, and then he can speak the language. It's fine, uh, you know. But you, at that point, you don't care because you're invested in the characters, and you're like, oh, he's awesome. Yeah, so tell us about the uh, t- tell us about the podcast now. You've got uh, you've got a number of people working with you on this. Oh yes. Uh, well, I've, I've got uh, Chris Harrington as Mr. Flask, mm-hmm. and he's also uh, our art department. He runs Shadowfall Productions. And uh, he's done all of our art and has been our, our audio imagineer, uh, helping us create the, the soundscapes and environment uh, in the world of Dr. Geek's Laboratory. And then I have uh, um, Calliope Collicott, who is playing Madam Oracle and the computer Deus Ex. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so that's been wonderful. And then we've actually had two people play the part of Mr. Creature, our test subject, uh, and from the most, for the majority of season one, it was a soft Zuba. Yeah, you keep losing them, I guess. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, they are, you know, they are kind of red shirts. Um, so, uh, actually, it's very funny if you look at our website. Uh, you know, Doctor Geek is in. Uh, he has uh, blue is associated with him. He's administration, and uh, you know, and uh, uh, development. And that's Mr. Flask. He, he's associated with the color purple, and uh, the Department of Research. It's green. You know, that was uh, that was uh, Calliope's favorite color. And we decided that the testing department had to be red. Uh, but uh, so what was interesting was uh, Sasha Zuba plays the part of uh, Mr. Creature in season one, and at the very end of season one, we actually go through a regeneration or as we like to call it, a remuneration. Uh, and at that point, uh, Phil Harrington came on as the second Mr. Creature. Uh, and it's been, it's, been, uh, it's been great. I mean, the thing about it is it's become less of a podcast and more of an audio drama uh, or a dramedy. And what we like to do is uh, we have interviews where we actually talk to real scientists and real entrepreneurs and, and such. And then we have this kind of wacky world of the lab where we try to take those concepts and ideas that people talk to us about. And we use our device called the WayForward device. It's kind of a time-traveling machine that we're able to take our, our test subject and send him into the future. And we get to experience what a possible future would, uh, concerning, would say, robots or flying cars or the privatization of space may be. And, you know, if you, our first few podcasts were rather straightforward. And the next thing you know, Chris says, you know, wouldn't it be great if we did uh, Foley or other sorts of traditional radio drama effects? And you say, okay, great. So next time, you know, time around, we'll do that. 
And then the next thing, uh, uh, we were talking at the next production meeting and said, well, wouldn't it be great if we did our own incidental music? And, you know, and, hey, we're going to be doing this and doing this. And next thing you know, we're creating whole soundscapes. And it's been it's been fun, and people are really starting to get into it, and the the personalities of the characters. But ultimately, the whole story is we're actually using the scientific method to solve problems, and we're being inspired by fiction to create real science, and vice versa. Oh, that's awesome! I mean, I listened to uh, the beginning, I think, of episode six, remuneration. Okay. And yes. uh, it was uh, the production values are very high. Now, the uh, the introduction to it is is um, I mean you get right into the material the uh, the drama right away. Is that yeah? If, yeah. Am I remembering this right? Because I've yes, got this exactly. I've got this queued up right now. We yeah. Can, play can we it play it a little? Yeah. Sure. Absolutely. Please. Okay. Here we go. Place place clip here. We well, will actually, fix we can record it right now. You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. This episode of Dr. Geek's Laboratory of Applied Geekdom is brought to you by the new Deacon Chalk novel, Blood and Magic, by James R. Tuck. Available everywhere fine books are sold, in real life, and online. For years, Dr. Geek has toiled in obscurity, trying to realize the future through the science of applied geekdom. Pressured to prove his theories or lose funding, Dr. Geek has now opened the doors of his amazing laboratory to public participation and public collaboration. With the help of his partner, Mr. Flask, a test subject known as Mr. Creature, and a computer called the Deus Ex Machine, Dr. Geek conducts an investigation into the world of tomorrow, creating the future by discussing it. Everyone look busy. So that that's pretty awesome stuff. You do your own music and everything? Yeah, everything. Uh, you know, uh, we do our own sound effects, we do our own Foley effects, we do our own music, uh, we, you know, all the writing is original. Obviously, uh, uh, there's a certain style, uh, I, I like to call it geek speak, uh, and this is uh, something where, you know, obviously we're, we're fans of many genres of science fiction and fantasy, so you may notice a few references to uh, your favorite TV show, and there might be a few quotes that we're uh, doing, uh, and that happens quite often. Uh, but, you know, I, I do that because it's the easiest way to get a, a point across. You know, our fans are us. And uh, if you've ever been to a, a, a convention, we all do that all the time. And, and so I thought it would be a way of showing, you know, hey, uh, you know, we're you, you're us, and let's all have some fun. Well, you and, know your audience. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, with uh, Mr. Creature's uh, remuneration, uh, just to have a little bit of fun, uh, basically I took the last words of everyone who's ever played the part of the Doctor and made sure that it was referenced uh, during that whole sequence. Uh, so either so either uh, Mr. Flask or Dr. Geek or Mr. Creature or um, uh, Madam Oracle or Deus Ex, somebody there said each one of them, uh, and thank you to uh, Wikipedia for giving me the complete list. But uh, it was it was nice. I mean, we do things like that all the time. Uh, uh, it, it seems that Mr. Flask has a uh, a perchance for speaking uh, in Han Solo speak, and uh, Doctor Geek has a sort of a 
Captain Kirk and a uh, Doctor Who kind of uh, bent to his dialogue a little bit. Uh, and uh, it, it just sort of becomes uh, almost uh, too natural a little bit. <laughs> uh, but we have a lot of fun. I mean, you know, it, it's it, things like that. We, we have a, an episode early on, I think it's episode two, where we, uh, Dr. Geek is uh, a little upset. He says, you know, the, the elevators are too quiet and too efficient. They need to act like elevators in fiction, which means that there's a, an ubiquitous background hum. There's a light cue in the back that tells you what floor you're on. And the, the elevator will travel as long as the conversation in the elevator takes. So even if you're going only up one uh, one floor, it will continue to isolate and not open the doors until you're done talking. Uh, <laughs> you know, because because we, we follow the rules of, of fiction and try to make it work. And, you know, and uh, so it's a lot of fun. Of course, that comes and kind of bites us in the rear end a little bit at the end of that episode. But that's the fun part of it. We're making we're not making fun of, but we're enjoying and embracing the, the quirkiness of fiction. And uh, we're trying to show that, you know, you can't, you know, you can be inspired by that to make real science. Speaking of ins- being inspired by fiction to make real science, have you seen this? Uh, we're putting a TARDIS into orbit. Oh, yes. The, the Kickstarter thing. What oh, the yes. heck? At the time of this recording, they are very nearly halfway there. Well, this, this is fantastic. It's going uh, yes. a couple of days. Actually, um, Robert, who is the father uh, in that project, it's a father and daughter, uh, they reached out to the Ken Spivey band. uh, And uh, uh, actually, I think what it is is one of their supporters reached out to us and said, hey, uh, you need to to know about this group. And uh, I'm also the manager of the Ken Spivey band. And so... So Ken and I, uh, you know, got together and we said, oh, we have to support this. This would be awesome. Uh, and so I sent an, an email to Robert and I've been communicating with him all day. Uh, and yeah, it's amazing. They have a, uh, I think it's like basically one foot tall TARDIS. Uh, and they have the a... size of it, okay. Yeah, and it's uh, the windows are solar panels to power the thing. It will have a light that will flash on the top. It will have a camera so that it can send pictures back. And it will have a hard drive, uh, actually not a hard drive, like an SSD card that will have uh, messages from the various backers, you know, something like, you know, this is Dr. Geek and apply your geekdom, uh, that kind of thing. And uh, they're trying to get it so that it will be in orbit for the 50th anniversary on November 23rd, 2013. Can you imagine... The the look on some, you know, some ISS astronaut's face, if, if, if this thing comes anywhere near the station and they're tracking this thing and they're going, what the hell is that? I'm sure no. uh, at least someone on the station will have a message inside. Come on. <laughs> oh, absolutely. No. I mean, for the 50th anniversary, could you not think of the most perfect way to celebrate that? I, I, you know, I think it's awesome, and it, it's uh, what I've learned a little bit about it is that they, uh, you know, they did it as a project together. They, you know, they Googled what they needed to know and, and learned it and basically embraced what I've been trying to say. Science and engineering is not something to be afraid of, but to be embraced. And, you know, as Robert said, it might not have been the uh, the most fancy of TARDISes or and the like, but it was the idea was that they needed to be able to make it so that they could get it into that payload and be able to launch it so i you know we'll do all we can to, to promote it uh, it, ha- it 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 must be done <laughs> i mean it's just one of those uh moral imperatives for geekdom yes you know, i mean it's I- just why would you want to do something like that because we can, and for the geeks, it's the right thing to do. It's a low-Earth orbit. It's not going to be there 
It's not going to be there forever. Forever. Okay. Right. But it, it's going to be there for a few orbits at least, if they can uh, if they can figure out the, the math for it and get it get it under control. Well, the idea of, the, of a private group being able to do that at all is just amazing. It, it, it's right up our alley. I mean, the, the, can you imagine this? It's the 21st century, and private individuals have the ability to have access to being able to send a payload into low Earth orbit. Uh, you know, uh, maybe I'm dating myself a little bit, but when I was a kid, that was something that was the purview of governments. Uh, and for it now to be accessible to the average person, uh, that is the beginning of the future right there. It is definitely awesome. And as we like to, to say to Dr. Geek, they're applying their geekdom. Uh, absolutely. So here's a little bit from the Kickstarter website I'm looking at. I'm looking at the page right now. It's the name of the project is We're Built, We're Putting the TARDIS into Orbit, really. And uh, <laughs> the description reads um, November 23rd, 2013 is the 50th anniversary of Doctor Who, and we're extremely excited. So excited, in fact, that we almost don't know what to do. Almost. Actually, we know exactly what to do. We've built a replica TARDIS and we're sending it into orbit. Yes, really. We're not talking about sticking a little plastic TARDIS on top of a model rocket and shooting it really high into the sky, although that would be wicked cool. And we're not going to tie a TARDIS to a weather balloon, which, by the way, would also be pretty flippin' awesome. No, we're putting a TARDIS into the payload bay of a real, actual, honest-to-goodness rocket and launching it into low-Earth orbit. Low Earth orbit is where satellites need to be to actually orbit the Earth, not just fall back down. So we're talking about sending this thing really, really high. Space high. The International Space Station is in low Earth orbit. Seriously. The guys on the International Space Station will be able to look out their windows and say, check out that police call box floating by. And then there's, they've got this picture of uh, one of those Keep Calm t-shirts, except this one's in TARDIS blue with the TARDIS on it, and it says, Keep Calm and Orbit On. And that's actually one of the perks. If you donate $45, you can get this shirt and have your name and your message added to the TARDIS satellite. I am so doing that when we're done recording. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. And, and, you know, uh, your your listeners should actually uh, look up the company that's helping them do it. It's uh, Interorbital Systems, and they have packages uh, for uh, tiny little payloads to, that they can send into space. Is you know, that, it's still it's I'm still sorry, expensive. Is that inner orbital or interorbital? Interorbital. Interorbital I, and, systems. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's wow. We'll we'll put up a link later. Yeah, yes. we're we're definitely going to be uh, adding our voice to the chorus on this one. This is this is an amazing thing. Do you have any idea what the uh, what the electronics in the box are actually going to be doing apart from powering the light on the top? Uh, well, I believe there's going to be a camera. I think I've yeah, I've heard something about camera. that. Uh-huh. And and then uh, beyond that, uh, just the the storage for the messages. I I really don't know beyond that. And a little tiny automaton jumping up and down going, This is cool! This is cool! This is cool! cool. (laughs) Geronimo! (laughs) I don't see! (laughs) Exactly. Uh, A jelly baby. They need to put a jelly baby. Magnetic passive attitude control system. So it's going to be oriented. It's it's going to be taking pictures of Earth. It's going to be pointed back at the planet instead of being pointed out to space. Uh, And... 
Well, Star that makes sense because if you think about ever since Doctor Who came back in 2005, the very first shot is from orbit looking at the Earth and then zooming down into England and then, you know, into London. So it would be really cool if this was able to duplicate the same shot. Yeah. I see here that they were they were originally going to put a hard disk in it, but hard disks, unfortunately, are also... Um, They're a bit vulnerable. They, to... they are gravity-dependent. Yeah, yeah, well, and the other thing is that they're gyroscopes. Yeah. And you're going, you're, whatever you stick a hard disk in is going to precess in orbit. And That's an issue. Yeah, well, you're not going to be able to control that. They have computers on the ISS. I mean, they, they run them somehow. Well, yeah, they do, you know, but... Uh, I don't think we're affording that model this year. Maybe, no. maybe next TARDIS. But, but what they're using, what the, what the people who built the TARDIS are doing is they're using solid-state drives. Which oh, is I don't like care if they put giant... my message up there on a piece of, you know, construction paper and crayon. I'm there. <laughs> I'm fascinated by the entire idea of science from fiction in the first place. I mean, um, we talked earlier about how everything on Star Trek, everything that we saw on Star Trek is turning into an invention now. And uh, it's, it's really getting, uh, you know, it, it goes beyond just... Oh, wouldn't it be cool to have this or that? I mean, we're f- this is getting kind of stupid. The, well, the what are what are yeah? But I, what are the fictional roots of the internet? I mean, well, we're living true. with it now. Don't don't be unexcited. We're no, surrounded I'm not. By a, I mean, I'm just. It's stuff. just. It's just stupidly bizarre what they're being able to do. I just oh yeah, no, article... it, it's it's amazing because you know uh, the whole concept of the 3D printer, right? Oh, all yeah. right. So so, so what's just. Yeah, let's, let's just walk through, let's say, the last 12 months of development for the 3D printer. The first story I saw about this, it was um, a 3D printer was replicating uh, parts for a gun. And you're like, oh, okay, well, that's interesting. And then the next thing you heard was, well, actually, we can 3D print a house uh, and do it in a day. And you're like, oh, that's even better. Then they started talking about how they could uh, 3D print a bionic hand for a child or a jaw for a person that needed a replacement jaw. Mm-hmm. And now when we did our investigation for the 3D printer, which will come up in season two of Dr. Geek's Laboratory, uh, you know, we, uh, we were basically told they have the ability to th- uh, 3D print cells. Um, this is not something that's going to show up at the local Kinko's necessarily. There's as, a lot of as in clean- spraying cells. Spraying yeah. cells out of the injector to form a biological matrix. Or yes, n- not not printing the structure of the cells and arranging them or anything like that. I think it's all of the it's, above. It's, I, th- I think it's all of the above. Basically, they have the ability to uh, to print um, you know biomatter, and uh, you know it's it's something that people are experimenting with. Uh, and you know, and uh, at the rate of development, you know that, that you know that this is the one thing that we've learned a lot uh, with, on Doctor Geek's laboratory is that you know you're trying to guess what the future is, right? Let's take a moment and think. You know, t- uh, Disneyland in Anaheim, California, that was supposed to be the wonderful world of 1985, uh, mm, and yeah, as, as, as envisioned in 1955. And you just think, well, how did that happen? Well, they were at the beginning of the uh, nuclear uh, of the uh, you know the atomic age. And they were with, you know, NASA was going to the moon. They were doing all these things. And uh, so someone said, well, you know, honestly, given this rate of development, if all things being equal, 
30 years from now, you know, clearly we're going to be living on Mars. Uh, and that's the problem. Things are never go- always progressing at the same uh, linear speed. You know, things happen. The, uh, and so it's very hard to predict what's going to happen in the future. But it, the the last 12 months of development for the 3D printer show that, you know, it it's going to be a, a very remarkable tool. It, and it's the limitation is going to be less on the actual science, but more on what we choose to do with it. You can actually go to the Office Depot website and buy a 3D printer off the shelf. Yes. And I, that's, it blows me away. From what I understand, it's a terrible deal. It's not a very good price for a 3D printer. You're much, much better off going with uh, one of the other manufacturers. But the fact that they have this off the shelf... And that you can buy the materials and parts for it. Well, you're not buying. You're not printing a new trachea with it either. Well, no, no. You know, but no. You know, but it's a it's an entry level device. And if you think about it, think about. well, which, which make a, a connection to the things that our audience would, would love. So you know that back in the uh, early 70s, doing something like a lightsaber on screen took I- ILM and a lot of uh, imagineering and a lot of ingenuity and cutting-edge technology. And now, uh, 40 years later, uh, I can do the same effect with the computer I have in front of me, and it takes 10 minutes. Uh, so it's the same sort of thing. This, this off-the-shelf... Uh, 3D printer that is available, it's not going to get you uh, a new trachea, but it could get you a new toothbrush. All right, so it's not, you know, going to be replacing uh, your need to go to the store, you know, anytime soon. But the fact that the average person has a chance to use it, get familiar with it, get comfortable with it, and learn what it does, then they get to do the thing that people do best, which is to say, this is awesome, what's the next thing it can do? And then, well, how much did you pay for your first computer, uh, you know, home computer you, printer? You don't want to know. <laughs> yeah, well, and this will, we will think of this the same yeah, way. My, my yes, first... Uh, my first, my first computer, uh, you know, was a, a IBM PC. Uh, it was an XT, and that was the one that had the hard drive in it with uh, twenty megabytes of disk space. And uh, oh my on. gosh, that was going to be that was going to take care of me for life, right? We yeah. had an Apple too, not a Plus. Not anything. Apple II. Yeah, my my first computer was a radio, and this is I'm really dating myself here. Uh, my first computer was a Radio Shack color computer. Uh, it loaded programs in not off a disc, not even off a floppy disk, but off of cassette tape, and it nice. has 4K of memory. That's 4,000 <laughs> bytes. You can't. My college roommate programmed computers with cuneiform clay tablets. <laughs> actually, I love that. Uh, actually, and, you know, and the hell of it is, it's true. She was a doctoral candidate in ancient Near Eastern languages. <laughs> I can, I, I can believe it. Actually, you know, um, if you look at Windows Eight and the the uh, tablet uh, stuff that we're doing and the tiles and everything like that, I often joke that my ancient language skills will come in handy again because you know we're, we're going away from the whole keyboard and and words and you know if you take into account the uh, the uh, impact that Twitter and everything else has had, you know, our language is changing and it's going to evolve and it's just going to be pictograms again. And, you know, the whole world is going to go full circle. And it'll be in Chinese. Right. <laughs> at, at, with Western, right? <laughs> oh, oh. They've fire- already got the pictograms. These already exist. They'll just have to invent a few more. I don't know what the, you know, Chinese pictograms are for 
you know, a, you know, personal computer or you know. Right. Yeah, exactly. No, but it, it's it's fascinating to see how you know all those things play. But you know, talking about uh, what you know, Star Trek inspired the people of the '60s, and that technology really started to show up uh, in the '80s. I think now you have things like the Matrix and the like. Uh, you know, the ideas of Google Glass and being constantly connected, uh, and and being uh, having a virtual life is something that is definitely uh, a, co- a modern concept that is definitely taking hold. Well, there's the, uh, there's the popular uh, MMO called Second Life, mm-hmm. which, is, uh, which is a really interesting glimpse into what this might be like. An interesting glimpse into a lot of people's heads, too, and <laughs> what they are, how they want to present themselves to the world. <laughs> right, right, exactly. You know, exactly. You, we we put on we put on clothing, and uh, and style our hair a certain way, and that says something uh, to the outside world about what we want them to perceive about who we are. And in Second Life, the physical restrictions are are removed, and uh, they can just go nuts. You can they, be a they... mouse or a fox or a Tyrannosaurus Rex or a supermodel <laughs> or whatever right. you want to be. Uh huh. Right. Exactly. No, so it's 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 interesting, and and you know one of the uh, reasons I really felt it was necessary to do Doctor Geek's laboratory now and to do things like the uh, archaeology and fiction book was because I had one too many conversations with people that were uh, of my you know parents' uh, generation and a little bit older, saying you know I'm retiring and uh, I'm coming back to work on Monday as an independent contractor because there's nobody in their twenties that is, wants to do what I do. You know, uh, I have a friend who was a nuclear engineer, and he basically said, you know, my job is to write down everything I know so that ultimately on the day I can't do this job anymore, somebody will be able to do this. But, you know, we have to we have to make science and engineering and mathematics and all the other technologies uh, sexy. It's, you know, it, it's it's got to be something that people get inspired to do again. Well, and, you know, I, I, there's a lot of end user experiences like what we're talking about with uh, Second Life and the like. But, you know, it would be great if we had a room full of people that knew exactly how to make all that happen. Well, speaking of nuclear physics, uh, we just ran an article uh, as a, by the time this airs, it'll be two weeks ago. Uh, there's this kid, uh, Conrad Farnsworth, the 18-year-old whiz kid from uh, Newcastle, Wyoming, who built his own fusion reactor. Not fission, fusion. Fusion. Oh, my. So there's no uranium involved. Right. And uh, uh, he was going to go to this state science fair in Wyoming, and they banned him. Because he'd entered in too many science fairs. So they kicked him out on a technicality. I think they heard fusion reactor and thought it was going to explode or something. And, yeah, they got a little scared. Well, you know what? Um, In the next... In the next in the next year or so, we are going to be doing Doctor Geek's Science Fair, and it will be uh, like everything else that we do with a little bit of science and a little bit of fiction. There'll be a uh, traditional uh, science fiction convention meets a good old fashioned science fair, and I would welcome him to come I to it. I want to build a volcano. Absolutely. <laughs> Why not? Absolutely. Well, what, he, what what this guy was doing was he was uh, he built his own fusion reactor by doing a lot of research. He underst- obviously understood the mathematics behind it, uh, but he built his reactor out of stuff he bought off the internet, uh, stuff that he traded uh, 
traded for with, with other fusion enthusiasts and a few things he made himself. And he's one of only 15 high school students in the entire world to achieve nuclear fusion, ever. And he's the only person in the state of Wyoming to do it. And uh, the fact that, uh, the fact that he, they punted him uh, from the science fair out of some weird technicality that uh, uh, fear it was fear yeah, it was I, I don't not know. Ever, I mean it, the whatever even, the even his even his teachers none of his teachers knew about this restriction that you couldn't enter more than one science fair at a time uh, to get to the to get to the state uh, level. It sounds like a technicality to me. I mean, it reminds me. It sounds me like of... they made it up so he wouldn't sh- he wouldn't be able to enter. That's what it sounds like. Yeah, but apparently it was in fact on the books, and that yeah. information was not passed along to anyone because it had never happened before. Uh, but uh, the fact that they thought this was an important thing to make a restriction out of. That boggles my mind. Yeah, you can't enter too many science fairs. You can't be too smart. What? Yeah, what exactly the Fritos is going on here? (laughs) Love my llama. Yes. Well, (laughs) as an attorney, I can tell you that there are uh, rules that stay on the books a long, 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 long time. And, uh, you know, this is a perfect example that I hopefully people will be outraged by it and they will change that rule. No, I, I, I really hope so. I mean, this, uh, this event has gotten a great deal of attention. Oh, if that boy ever has to actually pay for college, I'll be surprised. Somebody, yeah. somebody will, will stake up a free ride just to see what he does next. Oh yeah, yeah. just, just to make him, just to have him set the whole thing up in their office and have him turn it on and watch that little sphere glow blue. I mean, that would be. I mean, right there, that's <laughs> what the price of admission. Absolutely. But, Absolutely. But, uh, well, do you want to send a UCLA Bruin into orbit? Do you want to send a <laughs> into orbit? I, can I mean, think of it a... it, that would be, you know, feather in the cap of any college in the I world. I went to UCLA, and I can tell you there are a couple of UCLA Bruins I'd like to send. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tommy Trojan, too. Yeah. Uh, there, but but uh, stepping back a little bit, uh, this isn't the first... Uh, I mean, we have been seeing some pretty amazing advances. We've been seeing some from... impression of smart kids, too. The girl who got suspended for, you know... It, it, it was something more than putting Mentos in a Coke bottle, but some experiment, and she got... Yes, well, she got... Yeah, she was... I think what it was is she put some volatile chemicals in, in a, uh, a confined container... She didn't know that they there would be a volatile reaction. Yes, she did. There, well, she didn't know how big a one, and yeah. it turned out to be explosive, and yeah. it blew it up. It wasn't during school. It hours. wasn't during school. No one was hurt. It blew up, and they threw her out. And they've since revoked. They they've dropped the charges. They actually her, they exonerated her. They, they, uh, but it's that creeping anti-intellectualism, and and it's not just sexism. Apparently, it wasn't because she no. was a, a smart girl. It was because uh, the Farnsworth boy had the same, essentially, the same issue. Well, and yeah, it's it, the creeping it, it, anti-intellectualism that we must fight. We must combat them. Yes, absolutely. Now, stepping stepping back a little bit, stepping off my soapbox. <laughs> uh, oh, uh, I've been I've been 
sort of watching this whole uh, process of Star Trekification of our modern technology over the last 15 years with great interest. Mm-hmm. About 10 years ago, uh, I noted with interest that somebody had figured out how to make a plasma, a room temperature plasma field on a desktop. That oh, nice. Could, that you could basically stick your hand into safely. Uh, and what it does is it, it, uh, it does kill the top layer of cells, whatever, whatever it is. It sterilizes it without drugs or sprays. And uh, you can actually pass food through this. And you'll have safe, edible food with none of the nasty side effects of, uh, of chemical treatment. This isn't the plasma thing. We saw them as props in Voyager, you know, or in, uh, you know, there's the Borg... Uh, uh, chambers with the little lightning bolts. That's no, not, oh, not yeah, that. No, 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 not, not that, that, not that, plasma, not that kind of plasma. No. Too bad no. because those are cool. No, but this sounds a lot like the sterilization field that you would find in sickbay. Yes, it does. Uh, yeah, it, it does. Yeah. and yeah. It's, that's it's precisely what it sounds like. Uh, and uh, expanding on this a little bit, you can make a plasma field like that. Uh, and stick it to the outside of a spaceship with not very much energy, uh, and it'll absorb, you can use that plasma field to absorb and distribute energy from cosmic rays and solar radiation and what have you. That's good, because I didn't think you needed to sterilize much out there. Well, no, but (laughs) the the reason you need shielding like that for long trips is uh, you get a lot of hard radiation out there. There is a lot. Actually, you know, there is that uh, Mars One project. Uh, are you familiar with it at all? Uh, no, I'm Where they're sending, you're talking about sending people there? Oh, oh yes. sending people to live there, one-way trip? Yes, it's a one-way trip. And one of the reasons um, they, they, you know, part of the selection process, and they tell you, is that, you know, they want people who are either not going to have children or don't want children, because the odds of you uh, being sterile by the time you get to Mars is uh, quite high. Well, I think that's already always been a tacit agreement ever since, you know, space right. travel to begin with, isn't it? But but it was it was something to see that in black and white and to yeah. to admit it because you know that's the thing is that is that you know it, it, the uh, image of space travel that you get from uh, modern sci-fi, I would say Star Trek or or Firefly or something along those lines or Babylon Five, is that oh it's no problem I'll just hop in my ship I'll set the coordinates boom I'm done no problem I, you know no ill effects. Well, and, this is why know, the Enterprise had a navigational deflector, for one thing. Right. And all the shielding and all the armor and all the other stuff. But, I mean, you know, to try to do a simple, and I, you know, and it's by no means simple, but, I mean, in, in sci-fi terms, a simple trip from the Earth to Mars, uh, you know, there's a lot of danger to the, the human crew that, you know, and people are willing to do it. I mean, as they say, risk is their business. Um, and that's fine, but you know it, it's uh, and the thing that I think is remarkable is the number of applicants that they're probably going to get, even with all those risks. Uh, you know, but yeah, if they could come up with something simple uh, like a, a plasma shield that can take care of this issue, so they don't have to uh, put you know put the living quarters behind a big barrel of water uh, or other yeah, things the, like that. The amount of water great. that they would have to lift uh, as shielding to take care of this problem would be probably two thirds the weight of the craft. Hey. You know, this means that fat people are are much better bet for outer space because we got this water layer 
<laughs> Dude, I'm applying. <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, I think I think uh, personally, I think the the idea of the Mars One uh, project, uh, I think it's a little premature given the current state of our technology. I think if they just work out the bugs in the radiation shielding, uh, everyone will be a lot happier because they're going to need it once they get there as well. Yeah, because there's but... no atmosphere to protect them like there is here. Uh, and, uh, you know, nobody wants to go up there just to wither and die. I mean, of well, of I, course. I guess some people do. Dude, no, I well, no, I, I, I think, yeah, I, I think that, um, I wouldn't say that it's premature because there's no time like the present to get excited about this type of thing. You have to, you have to encourage and you have to, uh, uh, electrify uh, a base of people who will support this, and if you uh, if you actually show that the people are willing to make that journey and show the risks involved, then maybe they'll have the support needed for the R and D to make it a safer trip. Oh yeah, to actually solve the problem once you actually yeah. prove that there are people interested in going, and there's money to do it, and right, and there's money I mean, to be made. I mean, there's I mean, nothing you know, that'll motivate the the private sector like you know the the promise of profit. What's on Mars that we want? Right, exactly, and, and you know, but that's a very human thing. Mm-hmm. I, it's humans know, who are building these, so I think we have to do that. Right, and and I think that the you know that, that's when uh, I've t- gone to to the, the Kennedy Space Center and talked to a few people there, and and you know the biggest problem is when the space shuttles became uh, passe. When they you know it's like oh it's another shuttle launch, oh big deal. Uh, that that complacency that started to develop uh, in the early '90s that was uh, was bad. You know, when you start taking things for granted, when you forget that it's a rocket, and that every time we launch, uh, people are putting their lives at risk. Uh, you know, then when th- something does inevitably go wrong, like the Challenger. Well, right, yeah, I was going to place this in the late '80s because I was watching that morning, and yes. and only ABC and and CNN covered the launch live. The other two major networks psh, didn't even look until right. seventy-eight seconds later. Right, and it was it was one of those things where you know it was kind of a wake-up call, and then the question becomes, you know, it. it uh, I I find it funny. It's like the space program is one of those things where everyone seems to be for it, but when you have to make the choice to support it, it's like, well, you know, there's all these other things. Uh, that I, we could spend the money on and stuff like that. And he's like, no, 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 you don't understand. It's very important to support the space program because the things that you gain from it help us all. And, you know, and there's no other opportunities to develop this technology without going to space. And well, anybody who has set, a, set foot in a hospital in the past 20 years has benefited, benefited yes. from space research. Absolutely. Like, um, well, for example, Corning glass. Well, that's the same the glass example, isn't it? Yeah, the 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 window glass that uh, that Corning glass developed uh, to be portals in in uh, I think it was the Gemini craft. Yeah, the, the Mercury yeah. craft used a piece to piece of quartz. I found out about that, and I wouldn't cook with anything but Corning ware for months. Such a space kid. Uh, but uh, the corning glass that uh, that was developed as the nose cones uh, and the window glass for uh, spacecraft in the 60s is the grandfather of the glass that we have in 
all of our cell phones and tablets and uh, and smartphones now. So when you pick up your iPhone and you, you know, you switch that sucker on, you have the space program to thank for that little guy. You've got more computing power in your hand than the Apollo program could dream of. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I, I have somewhere here, I've got a little tiny box that I was given as a, as a birthday gift one year. And in it is a spool of paper tape. <laughs> and what is on this tape? It's program instructions for the computer that sent the first men to the moon. Oh my gosh, that's paper, awesome. Paper tape. The, the, <laughs> the computer that they used to do those calculations was as big as the house I'm sitting in now. And I think my cell phone is probably 10,000 times smarter and faster than hey, that me. machine. And if someone's going to invent the next iteration, they, they're going to high school now. Right, right. And we need to encourage them to, to make those choices to go into the sciences and, the, and uh, really embrace it. And if, if they get inspired by, you know, the, the nanite technology of Star Trek Voyager, because, you know, that, that was the Star Trek series where everything was nanites. Uh, you know, it, you know, you know, we got 12 seconds to go. No problem. The Borg has the ability to reprogram everything in 12 seconds because it's nanites. Uh, right. You know, uh, you know, it never, would be never mind communicating with all those damn nanites and telling them what to do. Nanites are, were just the sun-dried tomatoes of, of Star Trek, weren't they? <laughs> they were yeah, just freaking everywhere. But it would be nice if 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 that is what inspired um, him or her, then uh, you know, then maybe we'll get a, a smarter nanite in the future. This is interesting. I didn't know this. One of the things we have to thank the space program for is portable cordless vacuums. The Black I can and, believe it. Black and Decker created the dustbuster for the Apollo space missions. I can believe it. Well, otherwise, they'd have to make a two hundred thousand mile. Extension cord, wouldn't they? Yeah, the, the Dustbuster. <laughs> Who are you gonna call Dustbusters? <laughs> they need, you know, the uh, it makes perfect sense if you think about it. They needed program. something compact. They needed yeah. something that had, you know, the Dustbuster came from the Apollo program. I mean, just people have n no idea how important the space program is. The, as you say, it's it's what pushes that cutting edge forward. Yeah, you know, one of the things we learned in our privatization of space investigation was that the, uh, what is very nice is that, you know, when the federal government basically mandated that there would be privatization of space, you know, it wasn't a matter of would this happen, it's going to happen. And the, uh, the thing that people tend to forget is that NASA isn't going anywhere. I mean, sure, you and I and a lot of other people would love it if NASA had a very strong manned space program, and I hope that they do again someday. But at the moment, what's what's wonderful is that that expertise is not going anywhere. There's only a few places in the United States where you can actually launch from. So the spaceports are still going to be in the same spot. And the way that the regulatory scheme is working is that those that are building the vehicles, they work with the FAA in their experimental divisions and so forth. But the moment you start talking about a mission going to space then you start talking to the people at NASA because, of course, they have all the expertise. And you get to, you know, and they're going to rent space on their on their platforms for you. 
And, it, you know, so uh, we're not losing that expertise. It's just coming into a different way. And as, as, as um, I think it was the uh, bus driver on the, uh, uh, the tour at uh, the Kennedy Space Center said they were about to hand over low Earth orbit to the private agencies, but that NASA's mission would go uh, high orbit and beyond. Uh, and I think that that's great that they're uh, living together. I mean, like I said, it would be wonderful if NASA had a very strong manned space program, and I, I think that that will still happen uh, again at some point. But uh, it's nice to see that they're working together. Are we actually? Do we actually have anything at the Lagrange points? Mm, I don't know. I know uh, that there's been a some, lot of talk about using them. Yeah. I think we have a few geosynchronous satellites. Well, honey, I think we do, or else we wouldn't have weather reports or well, Krypton radio. Well, yes, I, well, okay. <laughs> I, did, I didn't know how many of the L5 points L5, L5 is not geosynchronous. That's it's not else. geosynchronous? That's, well, you're, we'll, 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 we'll do the, a discussion those, of the Lagrange points oh, another okay, time. Okay, okay, okay. I, I got a little confused. I haven't pondered the Lagrange points in a yeah, long there's, time. Yeah, there's a whole those, set, there's like one through four. Five, five, yeah, like five at of at least five, and five points so in Earth's orbit that uh, that give you the most stable possible orbit. Yeah, but they're not geosynchronous. They're that's well, not else. all of them are. No. Not all, but of that's them. A, that's another discussion. Okay, okay. Well, you can uh, cut that. Yeah, that's okay. I don't mind being wrong on the air. It's not like that's ever happened before. <laughs> so. Um, what can we expect from Dr. Geek's, Geek's Lab in the future? Dr. Geek, well, listen to me. Well, uh, a great big beautiful tomorrow, if I could borrow the phrase. Uh, we are going to be talking in Season 2 about uh, robots, and we're going to be coming back to that topic a lot, but the, the, the first time we touch it will be about uh, our companion, the robot. Something like, you know, Vincent from the Black Hole, or Robbie the Robot, or R2-D2. You know, is that a, a future that is still going to happen? We're going to talk about that. Uh, we're going to talk about the 3D printer, and we're going to talk about bionics, which is something that is very um, dear to my heart. I, uh, I, I have cerebral palsy, and one of the things that happened to me was I was one of the first people in the 70s to have the surgery that would actually give me the ability to walk. Now, I don't have uh, bionics in me uh, in the traditional sense, but when they were going through all that, they were trying to explain it to me uh, from the point of view of the $6 million man. You know, how do you explain to a small child what he is experiencing? And uh, so... Uh, that's kind of, I guess, where my love of science and fiction both started. And so it was very important to me that we actually did an investigation into bionics in season two. That's a very intense personal experience. Yeah. Uh, actually, the, the very first time that I walked unassisted, uh, the, uh, you know, the doctors and the, the scientists and everybody were just you know, overjoyed and happy. And I, I, I've been told I wasn't all that pleased. And they asked me, so, like, you know, what's wrong? And you know, are you in pain? And I, I said, uh, no, I, I'm not making the noise. Oh, uh, how old were you? I was, uh, I believe I was five and a half. Um, you know, rough there, five or, five or six. Oh, you are uh, <laughs> Yeah, right? Well, they, they had made sure that I, uh, you know, that whenever I was uh, at the hospital for any length of time, that, because uh, it was a series of, of surgeries, that I would always be able to, like, you know, be back at, you know, in my room to watch the $6 million man, because it was a way of, like, like look, this is what we're doing for you. We're making you better, stronger, faster. And, uh, you know. 
And, uh, you know, like, oh, okay, well, I, bu- I bought into it. Well, as a very young child, you don't realize that they're, you know, making a metaphor, you know, <laughs> you know, you know, like, you I was, boop, 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 boop. right, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, I, I was a geek at a very young age. Oh, that's marvelous. Well, uh, Dr. Scott Vigay, doctor of archaeology and creator of Dr. Geek's Lab, thank you so much for joining us on The Event Horizon. This has been a hoot and a half. Well, it was my extreme pleasure, and I hope everybody applies their geekdom. Yes, I I really think that this is so important, and the science fiction is such an inspiration to people who want to make this stuff in real life. And it's it's uh, it's certainly one of the things that that uh, attracted me to it. And I've sort of been I've been a tinkerer and and uh, uh, sort of a personal adventurer in in this notion all my life. So it certainly had an effect on me as well. Uh, again, thank you. And uh, it's, uh, I guess it's your turn to press the button. Ooh, I love pressing the button. You want to press the button? I'm pressing the button. Okay. okay. I have pressed awesome. The button. <laughs> There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day there's a great big beautiful tomorrow, and tomorrow is just a dream away. Man oh, yeah, they do actually. They have it uh, at Walt Disney World. Actually, I am. Uh, I, I, I actually enjoy it more. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you. Actually, you know, that is uh, a little theme song that, you know, we kind of think about when we do stuff over here. So, uh, that's awesome. <laughs> it's very, very cool. Oh, that is great. You have just heard episode 17 of The Event Horizon for June 14th, 2013. Our guest this week has been Dr. Scott Vigway of Dr. Geek's Lab. He's the author of the book Archaeology and Fiction, available in paperback from Amazon.com. And he's the mastermind behind the educational sci-fi website that stresses science from fiction. That's drgeekslab.com. One word. Your hosts have been Krypton Radio General Manager Gene Turnbow and Executive Producer Susan Fox. This episode will air again Sunday, June 15th, 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern Time. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The part of the science officer was played by Mark Schirmeister. The part of the engineer was played by Christopher B. McGuire. The navigator was played by Christine Cherry. And the role of the captain was voiced by science fiction writer and legend Larry Niven. This program and its contents are copyright 2013 by Krypton Media Group, Incorporated. Stay tuned for tonight's episode of X-1. Krypton Radio. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi.